You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. up in the 80s there was a lot of movies i watched before i was quite ready for them if it was something like halloween that was on at a birthday party i attended not knowing what was up and then being scared shitless by an inside out william shatner mask or something like heavy metal which hey it's animated it must be fine right i no no i grew up a lot that night but then there's movies that should have been suitable for a young child at the time Something like The Dark Crystal. Came out in 1982, co-directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. And as Oz states, Henson's goal with the film was to bring dark fantasy back to the era of the Brothers Grimm because it's not okay for children to go through life without being scared. And I have to say, this film, when I first saw it, is probably like six years old or so, it certainly left a mark <laughs> in so far as years later, I would still remember a lot of the imagery. And as I matured, I was like, okay, that was actually pretty cool. But at the time, kind of unsettling in a lot of ways, but I actually rewatched it a few weeks ago because there's a prequel series coming out on Netflix and Alicia had never seen it. So I was like, oh, we're going to sit down and watch the dark crystal. And all these years later, while not obviously a perfect film, I still found it very enjoyable. I literally just rewatched it today because it has been, I haven't seen it since it came out. Or no, I shouldn't say that. We watched it with the kids as well. So when the kids were young, hell, we still have the VHS downstairs, I'm sure. Um, we watched it with them. And it's funny because um, I'm at a stage now where when I'm watching something, I'm not thinking, how are the kids going to react to this? I'm thinking, how are the grandkids going to react to this <laughs> if I watch it with them? And Because we've been watching a bunch of different shows with them, and it's been a lot of fun. Um, as much fun as it is watching certain shows with your own children, uh, which I still do. We still do with the youngest who's still here, but again, he's in his early 20s. But he still hasn't seen a lot of classic films. So as he has aged, we've watched more and more films that have had a, a huge impact for both his mother and I. And and so now with the grandkids, we're, we're kind of looking at both classics as well as actually still keeping up with some of the newer stuff because both my wife and I like animation. So we like watching animated shows, whether we, we have the grandkids over or not. And one of the things that's come up often, especially from Karen, is asking like are the kids going to be afraid of this and that was a big discussion with into the spider verse and i was i kept going back to the same idea of a, a, a disney villain 
scared the bejesus out of our our youngest. Like you, you can never be certain what it is that's going to latch on to kids' imagination and scare the shit out of them. Yeah. That said, I'm fairly certain every fucking kid that sees <laughs> this at the right age, if they're below a certain threshold, is justifiably going to be scared shitless. Like, even as I was watching it now, no, I wasn't afraid, but I'm certainly going, holy shit, yeah, that would scare the shit out of any child who sees that, <laughs> which makes me rethink us watching this with the kids when they were young. <laughs> well, I, I remember, like, all all of the movies I remember the most fondly from my childhood from around this era, in one way or another, were either frightening or emotionally devastating. Like, there was something going on with filmmaking in the 80s where, like, kids have to be sad. Well, there was also a lot of creative freedom that certain um, creators had when they shifted away from Disney. And you saw mm-hmm. that with, uh, especially with, uh, Bluth, you saw that with oh shit, what's the the, the mouse film? Um, oh, the the five old movies. Yeah, no, not the five old one. Oh, the uh, oh shit, I'm gonna remove this. Oh, I know which one you're talking. Secret of Nim. Yes, you want to talk about an emotional film that will gut punch you regardless of yeah. your age? That was it. But it was beautiful in so many ways, and I I legitimately feel that there's. There's not nearly enough of that now in children's cinema, be it animated films or puppets like this or, or whatever. There's not enough. You, you, it can't always be a happy ending. And yet, sadly, that's far too often the case now between the, uh, the Pixar's and, and Disney films. You're going to get that happily ever after all the time. And it, it, there has to be a balance. It doesn't have to be all the way to the Brothers Grimm bullshit of, you know, everybody fucking dies. But it it, it shouldn't always be that happily ever after. And and this was a good balance for that, I found. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. So the movie starts off, we get a little backstory about this world that the film is taking place on called Thraw. Where 100 years ago, the, this powerful crystal was shattered and two new races appeared on the planet, the evil Skeksis and the kind Mystics. In the years that have passed, the Skeksis have ravaged the land, taken everything for themselves, until we come to the prophesied point where the crystal is supposed to be reunited. We're introduced to our protagonist, a young Gelfling, you know, a little, like, hobbit-looking thing, by the name of Jen. And right off the bat, there's something very unsettling about a naked Muppet. He was kind of covered up. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> I'm just saying he was kind of. It's one of those up. things that I didn't quite touch on, you know, years ago. But rewatching it as an adult, I was like, "That's kind of messed up. Why would you make a naked muppet?" I I saw that as well at the very beginning. <laughs> I'm going, "What the hell? All right, let's just roll with it. It'll be fine. No sudden so, movements. You don't want him standing up suddenly. <laughs> yeah, well, then you'll see the hand going up. Never mind." <laughs> The story that we have is a pretty traditional like hero's tale of uh, fulfilling the prophecy as uh, the, the mentor figure, the eldest and wisest of the mystics, passes away and leaves Jen with his mission to find the missing shard of the crystal and reunite it and restore peace to the world. I have to say, it was 
somewhat refreshing to see this traditional, like, heroic fantasy tale where the protagonist is largely incompetent at every step of the way. I don't know that I'd say incompetent so much as young and naive. And that's yeah, what they, they, they sent this kid out on a quest he had no chance of completing on his own. Oh, yeah. It, and that's one of the things that, again, as I was rewatching it, it's... Um, I was struck by that thought of, you know, all of these films like this that are very clearly made for children because it's adults sending children to their death, <laughs> essentially. And But the child, you know, is going to do great things and, of course, win. So you have that in the back of your head that, that it's all going to be all right. But let's be honest, you're sending a child off to die here. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that the reason he's the last Gelfling is the Skeksis killed off his entire race because of this prophecy. So, of course, you're going to send him into the, the lion's den, so to speak. I mean, hey, you know, they were really committed to that whole prophecy thing. They were fairly certain everything was going to turn out okay. Listen, the suns were about to line up. <laughs> <laughs> Something was going to happen. Sundial clock's ticking. We also get a look at the the Skeksis, who are probably one of those iconic uh, movie creatures from that era of these weird lizard bird people hunched over, filled with robes. Like, I really enjoy the scene where the Chamberlain gets kicked out of the, yes. the fortress and he's stripped of his robes. And you realize underneath, like, these imposing, majestic figures uh, is just this twisted scrawny weird you know featherless bird thing it it definitely sets a certain tone for them that is pretty damn impressive you know it's also funny you know what i thought of when they were doing that to him i was thinking of uh, an interview that i watched um for <laughs> of all things john wick three when they were talking about Lawrence Fishburne's character and part of the stature, part of that for him being the king of the underworld of the street is he has multiple layers of clothing over top of him. And mm -hmm. that's what allows him to survive those, those strikes that would have otherwise killed him. And this was very much like that. It's their stature is in these robes, all of these outfits that they, they put one over another over another just to try to look majestic. And and it also kind of ties into this idea of this, uh, an analog for us of different birds that like to hoard different things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I, I would say that the, the lasting influence of the Skeksis design is probably one of the most important things Henson did. You know, yes, Sesame Street and, and the Muppets are so iconic, but I think just alongside that would be the Skeksis. I don't know that I'd go that far, but they, they absolutely do stick in your mind. Um, as an example, a few weeks ago, um, they announced, or they, maybe they had them before and it just came up on Twitter, but they put up the uh, the box for a, a pop um uh, figure and it was a Skeksis and I had not yet rewatched the show so I had not seen it in quite literally decades and it was like holy shit I need that in my life now <laughs> <laughs> because that that visual is so printed in my brain so yeah it was brilliant design but I mean that's what he did so it's not surprising no not not at all 
the first step in Jen's journey is to go visit Agra, the uh, the seer, the, the the knowledge holder who possesses the shard of the crystal that he needs. And Agra's another hell of a design of like the weird stooped witch woman with plucking her eyeballs out to Dude, see that fucking <laughs> eye scene at the beginning jesus <laughs> christ yeah and i i stunning though is when he gets to her little hut or whatever and she has that gigantic orrery spinning with all the planets and the stars like that is just fantastic production design that yeah yeah, like I, I think about, again, I, I literally just watched it a few hours ago. Um, I looked at that scene and I was thinking, like you're trying to wrap your head around, what other similar scenes have I seen to that that were that cool, that well done, that was not just a special effect, but that was actually constructed and moving around. It's just a, a brilliant piece of architecture, that little that little thing how it was put together, and I, I absolutely adored it. I mean, not to mention the fact that at later points in the scene, you know, he's actually climbing on it. It's huge. Yeah, and it's kind of part of the building. Yeah, I, I loved it. Mm-hmm. A fun little scene of him uh, choosing the crystal... Uh, that like, sort of Indiana Jones moment <laughs> where uh, he pulls out his little ocarina and I, I would assume uh, Shigeru Miyamoto must have watched this film at some point. <laughs> but before long, the Gartham, uh, the Skeksis's warriors, these large crab insect things invade. And I'm pretty sure every time we see the Gartham in this film, it's as they're breaking down a wall. <laughs> that is just like their preferred method of entrance. Walls in this world are not built to withstand these things, and they just come crashing through at every possible opportunity. Ensign saw a lot of that Kool-Aid commercial. That, that had a huge impact on him at the time. <laughs> oh, God, for younger people listening. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if, if you don't know the Kool-Aid man joke. <laughs> it's possible. Look it up. Right, uh, Jen manages to flee before the Gartham can grab him, although they burn down the hut and make off with the witch at the same time. Uh, Jen escapes into the swamps where he meets, believe it or not, another young Gelfling, a girl by the name of Kira. And I love what they did in this movie with Kira. Like, she was never, like, you know, the prototypical love interest character. She was very competent in her own regards. And I'd say she saved Jen more times than the other way around for certain. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, she was a good character because, it again, it was one of those wherein I was trying to remember, okay, is it that the idea of love interest was not quite as popular in children's films at the time or just that Henson was brave enough to just have two characters that aren't love interest kind of thing. And clearly there's a, um, a lot of caring that they have for each other, which is especially um, apparent at the end of the film, but it's never presented as this romantic thing. And it's beautiful because of that. It works so much better. You don't always have to have the the prince that comes and saves the damsel in distress kind of bullshit. No, she's the one that, like, he would not have made it were it not for, for her kind of thing. And I, I really dug that a lot. Mm -hmm. And here we're introduced to the podlings, this uh, 
small race of people who we've come to find out over the years have been captured and enslaved by the Skeksis, although this small village remains intact. They're the ones who found and raised Kira after her village was destroyed. And we also meet the best character in the movie, Fizgig, her little Pomeranian-looking thing. God, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not my favorite character, I'll say that. He's... <laughs> Between this and Labyrinth... <laughs> Henson had a, a a certain affinity for fuzzy, yappy little dogs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, not all goes well. The Gartham show up again, make off with most of the village, although Jen and Kira do manage to escape. And we get one of the more disturbing parts of the film as we cut back to the Skeksis Citadel. And we've seen the podlings there before as like these mindless slaves. And finding out exactly how that change comes to pass, where they're strapped into these torture device looking chairs and made to stare into a reflection of the crystal, which sucks their life force out. This was freaking tra traumatizing, even in my 30s. <laughs> the slave master is literally called the slave master, if you check the credits. <laughs> Like, and again, this is a children's movie. And yeah, it's a slave master draining the life out of these little creatures and enjoying his work a little too much. Yeah. And then a bit where uh, the new emperor tries to, like, drink the life essence to make himself younger. It doesn't take because, well, nothing's as good as Gelfling life essence. Too bad there's no more of those around. Uh, we get a little bit of the prophecy of them finding, like, the lost Gelfling kingdom. I wish this part of the movie had been fleshed out a little bit more. A lot more. Yeah, because the, the lore behind the story of this film is very interesting. And I, I think it would have been better served spending even just five or ten extra minutes there. But, of course, animation's expensive, even if you're using puppets instead of hand-drawn or CGI. I get it, but... It's the biggest disappointment that I have with the film. See, part of that I attribute to the editing of the film as well. And again, I, I get that we are way different now in what we expect of our media. And there's a reason why North American films primarily are pretty fast in terms of the pacing because of the short attention span. And it was it was refreshing to see certain scenes playing out very slowly actually and and as a parent i know that that's the, those are the points where you're losing attention from your children sometimes but as somebody who appreciates a, a film i i like some scenes to be long and, and drawn out a little bit more so that you can appreciate them the the only problem is is that you still need to fit everything in to that two hour time frame thereabouts kind of thing so you're you don't have the time to put into other scenes that, you know, the adults would enjoy more hearing a little bit of history about that race, whereas the kids eh, don't care quite as much, so it's not put in. So, again, it's one of those things that I, I understand, but just like you, I, I was a little disappointed. Mm -hmm. And we also have the weird bit where the disgraced Chamberlain tries to befriend Jen and Kira. And... Viewing it again later, it's it's kind of weird because 
we clearly know as viewers he has no good intentions. I'm a little curious as to what their their goal was with the scene because even as a kid, I don't remember ever trusting the guy. Well, it was just to bring them back to win the favors mm-hmm. of the new emperor so that he could get back in. It, there was no... There was nothing going on there that you believed for one moment that he was trying to help them. I'm just saying, like, I... I feel it would have been a little more appropriate if maybe one of them had trusted him just to make this, the scenes have a purpose instead of him just showing up randomly until, you know, he manages to capture one of them. I don't know. Yeah, but you got to keep in mind, they both know that their entire, nearly their entire race has been oh, of killed course. off by this other race. So of course, neither one of them is going to trust them. I'm just saying the, the time we spent with these scenes could have been better spent with more of the backstory. Don't deny that at all. All right. One way or another, though, they do end up at the Skeksis Citadel with another disturbing creature design and the Land Striders, which <laughs> if you've ever seen the the actors who performed as the Land Striders outside of costume, these things are practically torture devices oh, <laughs> with really? like these, these long stilts on their arms, but they were hauling ass. Yeah, no kidding. Very, very creative stuff there. I have to give all credit. Uh, but as I mentioned previously, yes, the the Chamberlain does almost kill Jen and capture Kira. And then we get Kira in the chair, which knowing that what the chair does and seeing like her eyes start to gloss over, this is one of those things where this is a character we actually know, somebody who has a name, somebody we've become attached to over the past hour or so. And that tension and that drama in this scene, even watching it again as an adult, is absolutely on point. It was well done. It was really well done. And it was one of those where they had they had laid the groundwork for her uh, ability to communicate with so many different animals mm-hmm. that, again, it, it all made sense when you're seeing the resolution. And both for an adult as well as the children who are now cheering for this character who's, you know, rallying the troops, so to speak, and and sicking them on the slave master. So, yeah, it was really well done. Yeah, as well as previously establishing, like, that psychic link between her and Jen that, you know, allowed him to, like, in her stress, it wakes him up from under the rubble and they're able to communicate and he helps her break through the influence. Like, it wasn't just out of nowhere. Yeah. Very appreciated. Yeah. We finally get the big climactic end and we come to, like, the the problem when you have a puppet-heavy film. Action scenes don't quite work out all that well. <laughs> you have the, 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 you know, Jen running and jumping around and the Skeksis trying to attack him. It it doesn't play out that well, but it's still, it it does what it needs to do. It was a little awkward, and I'm sure, you know, 30 years later they could do better, but for the 80s, I think it got by just fine. I, I know that my opinion about this is tainted because I'm of that time kind of thing. I wasn't a child at that time, but I was... I, I remember it fondly from there. I remember all of the other shows that were heavy puppetry and not just kids shows either. And so as I'm watching it now, 
it's not that I'm still forgiving, but that justifiably I'm, I'm all right with it. Like I, I have no problems with it whatsoever as long as it's well done. And I mean, it's Henson, so it yeah. was well done. So I had no problems with it. it, it they, was, they were able to make up a lot with uh, cuts and camera angles to, to make up for the puppet deficiencies. Yeah, and we got to see that early on when the Skeksis are fighting about who's going to be the next emperor and they got the swords. And you go like, oh, this is going to be fucking ridiculous. But they did just enough to make it somewhat believable and, and make sense in terms of of the story. So... So once you've accepted that and those giant running whatchamacallits, you're all right with the rest of the show. <laughs> Pretty much. And one of the things I really appreciate that they did here is in the lead up to the big climax, we've seen little bits of connections between the mystics and the Skeksis. For example, like the, the one scene that really stands out is when uh, Jen cuts the hand of the chancellor yeah. and it cuts to the back to the mystics who are traveling to the citadel and a wound appears on one of their hands and i was like okay that's that's something that's subtle but obvious obvious enough that even like a child can catch on like it doesn't beat you over the head with the obvious connection but like it doesn't insult the intelligence of the viewer and trusts that people can catch what's going on until it, you know, continues to escalate as the film goes on, that yes, there is an actual connection between these two races. Really appreciated that storytelling. I remember that because it's fun watching a child see that. <laughs> because you see the wheels It's fun watching turning. a 34-year-old realize that. Yeah, so you get that look in their eyes of, hold on a second, what's going on there? And it's like, that's right, kiddo, you're getting it. Yeah, and that, that uh, going back to what we were saying earlier, is also something we don't see a lot. We don't see that, just as much as we don't see like that, that sadness and that loss in children's films, we also, in a lot of the ones I've seen, are a little too like focus-tested, where like the studio's now like, oh no, somebody might not understand this, we need to make the plot points yeah. more obvious. Which is horrible. I mean, what that does to cinema is terrible. Because you're you're writing for the lowest common denominator instead of assuming that they will rise up to the level of everybody else. Who gets it? You can have subtlety in cinema. And and if they don't get it right away, well, too fucking bad. They'll figure it out. And and this is a perfect example of that. Because it doesn't have to, like you said, hit you over the head. Mm-hmm. And this finally culminates in the, the convergence of the three sons and the rest restoration of the crystal at the very last second with Jen able to jam it back into place. And we get the Skeksis and the Mystics converging back into one race and finding out, yes, a uh, hundred years ago, they were all one people, a cat catastrophe occurred. I believe they, they, it was mentioned that it was of their own making that sundered the crystal and their various aspects with their darkest emotions being embodied by the Skeksis and their pure hearts being embodied by the mystics. A little bit of, uh, cheating. Yeah. Of them bringing Kira back to life after she's been stabbed. But I'd say like overall with as much darkness as this film held, I'm kind of okay with them balancing that scale slightly of giving everybody a slightly happy ending. Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie, though, I was a little disappointed. But 
I would have been just as disappointed had she turned into the Gelfling in the refrigerator kind of thing. So I, I was all right with that. Right. But I mean, overall, like this was a gorgeous film, like not just the puppetry, a lot of the set design, as we talked about, like the vistas, like the, the matte paintings in the backgrounds. Visually, it's a stunning film and absolute testament to not just Henson, but everybody he worked with, uh, Frank Oz, uh, and all the artists and puppeteers brought together something that 30, some almost 40 years later, honestly still holds up. And you cannot say that about a lot of works. Especially something like this, something that involves puppetry, because because there has not been enough of it over time that it is uh, an older way of telling a story that is not as popular. So it's, it's, it's easy to kind of dismiss it. But again, I don't know if it's partially because of the fact that I did grow up with it or just that it still is justifiably good. I, again, rewatched it today and it was a very pleasant afternoon. I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this again. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, there is a prequel series now on Netflix. It premiered this past week as of this recording. I haven't watched it yet myself. It's called Age of Resistance. It appears that it a, a, takes place during the time period where the Skeksis were trying to wipe out the Gelflings. But everything I've been reading has been, like as far as reviews and impressions, has been very positive. Nice. They're saying it does still embody the spirit of the original while being made for a modern audience. And while there is some CGI assistance at points, most of it is still done with practical effects. Really? Yes. Awesome. I look forward to watching it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to sit down one day and check it out. But that's going to wrap up our Dark Crystal episode. I just find it interesting that uh, over in our other Discord, we've been talking about kids' movies thanks to Stranger Things, and it just lined up that, hey, we're going to do Dark Crystal stuff. I don't want to watch a horse dial. <laughs> Go over this again. <laughs> but maybe we'll cover Neverending Story or something else at some point in the future. I think some of the guys are interested in talking about that. We'll see. But until then, thank you very much for listening. You can find... This episode, our show notes, and far more over at popcornronin.com. You can follow us for updates. Roger is on Twitter at Zen Buddhist. I am at Samodian. Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.